If you were to ask me, and many people do, what is the absolute most important thing a contractor or small business can do today that would have an immediate impact on sales, margin, recruiting, retaining, all these things that are so vitally important, I would say it really comes down to how you create and execute a market-leading customer experience. More specifically, I think that the customer sales buying journey with your company, that actually is the product you're selling. Now, if I were to boil that down even further and think about, okay, how do you actually do that? It would really come down to what I believe, two things, skill training practice and interpersonal communication skills. Now, I think it comes down to what extent are you willing to invest in the development of your people and the development of a world-class customer experience? I think that the better prepared your staff is, the more likely they're able to live out your core values and win more customers. Today's guest is Todd Lyles. Todd is a veteran in the home services space and particularly training world and spends his time helping contractors create business plans, delivers one-to-one group training, personalized training plans, and helps contractors live the life they deserve. Spoiler alert, one of the themes in this episode, and I don't want you to have to listen to it to actually get this, but it's to have an and mentality. Just because you're part of one training organization or just because you have a coach in this area should not exclude you from considering multiple ways you can learn and grow your organization. Please enjoy this conversation with my good friend, Todd Lyles. This is Todd Lyles, and you're listening to the Change Your Filter podcast. Todd, welcome to the Change Your Filter podcast. Hey, Paul, thanks for having me. We really appreciate it. I appreciate it as well, and I appreciate your time. And, um, you know, my listeners know this, but my favorite thing to do on this podcast is one, get to know people and share people's stories. Mm -hmm. with our audience. And so this conversation is really twofold. One, I want to get to know you more and learn about your history and what you're up to. And two, I want to share with our listeners kind of the historical context of training and where training was and where it's going and what's the same and what's different and talk about your company. But um, why don't you go ahead and just kind of kick this off and share with us how you got into this business? Yeah. So how I got into this business was after I'd graduated from college, uh, graduated from Louisiana Tech and engineering school, and I had a performing arts degree. <laughs> so they're counterintuitive. But I started working for a gentleman that owned a environmental laboratory testing company. And because we were doing testing at all of these different locations, and one of them was a, uh, a Georgia Pacific paper mill, I had met the man that I eventually went to work for, Mike Bellissimo, who uh, had a company in West Monroe, Louisiana called Service First. Mm -hmm. And I had told him the story, Paul, about how I created and developed a maintenance program for one of these companies that we did environmental testing for. Uh, The short version of it is is that they had a very expensive piece of equipment that cost about $24,000 to replace, and they were having to replace them about every four or five years. And I had said, why don't you let us try to fix one of these instead of replacing them? And in essence, it worked like a small air conditioning system. I took it back to our office and the techs there are mostly electronic techs. They didn't know how to fix it. I fixed it by replacing the condenser fan motor 
and by cleaning the coils. And it was it was a water bath, if you're curious. Mm-hmm. So I figured up the money on that they were, you know, losing and uh, and lost uh, systems. How many of these they had around the plant where they were doing different testing, and I wrote out a maintenance agreement. And my thought was they were replacing these every five years, and they've got about twenty of them. So I'll be saving them a lot of money if I charge them twenty four thousand to do basic maintenance and minor repairs. They said yes. So I told that story to Mike, and he said, "Well, you could sell air conditioning systems." And uh, I thought. Why not? Let's let, let's give it a go. So I went to work for Mike Bellissimo at Service First, I think in either late 2001 or early 2002. And Paul, he told me that they were doing a million dollars a year and that my job was going to take care of their clients. And I would be receiving somewhere between 5% to 10% commission. So in my mind, you know, I'm going to make $100,000 a year. And I walk into Mike's office day one. And I said, Hey, Mike, I'm ready to take care of the client list. Uh, can I get that client list from you? He goes, go to your office. I'll bring it to you. And I'm in my office and I'm like, oh, this is going to be so exciting. I'm going to get this list. I'm going to start calling all these clients. I'm going to start taking care of them because I didn't understand what my position was. And he brought in the yellow page book and he laid it on the table. He didn't lay it. He kind of slapped it. Toto, my boy, there's your list. You go get them. I spent the last 18 years building up my list. Those are my clients. I get to take care of them. You go find your own. And that was my uh, introduction into the world of heating and air conditioning and marketing and sales. And I was a little freaked out. So I can tell you, Paul, that I didn't really understand the technical side of things. Mike thought I understood it enough because of what I was able to do, but I didn't. So I started volunteering Saturdays and started volunteering evenings to go work with these technicians in the field that that I really respected. I thought they were just super smart. And it didn't take me very long to pick up the technical applications at all. And then once I picked up the technical applications, it didn't take me very long to start networking and knocking on doors and making a first introduction to within about three years, a little less than three years, we were doing around 3.2 million, if my memory serves correctly, off of the business that I had built. And that was a combination of commercial, which we were always doing, but I, I kept moving more and more into residential because our commercial clients had homes. So I had started building out a, a residential division that nobody really wanted there. So by the time I was 24, 25, I was making a pretty substantial living for myself. Um, and that that's kind of how it got started. And how I got started into training was as I was also selling, they began to realize that I had a knack for picking up information and then disseminating it to others. So there were different products that we were wanting to get into. And one of them was an energy management control system called Solodyne, which worked a lot like trains energy management control system and i went off and i learned that product and then i came back and i taught that product to our people and this was at a time when dan voss had variable speed control modules i learned that product and i came back and i taught that to our people and i just slowly gained the respect of some really amazing old school technicians that could and without exaggeration paul one of them was a Air Force technician who was like a bomb tech. 
And I watched this man rebuild control boards out of out of switches and sequencers and just spare parts that he had. He basically built a control board to operate this old air conditioning system. And I'm looking at that going, wow, that's amazing as a technician, but shouldn't that thing be replaced? So I, I gained the respect of these super smart people that maybe were super smart technically, but they didn't necessarily understand all the aspects of business. And uh, yes, yeah, so it was a combination of hard work and just being a self-motivator and learning and choosing to see things a little bit differently. And that's how I got started. If you want to go all the way back to when I was in my 20s. I wanted to go back to your college experience. And okay. um, you said Bachelor of Fine Arts or Performing yeah. Arts. Performing Arts, man. I uh, Performing Arts. Okay. Yeah. So I'll even take you a little further back than that. I was a, I was a speech and debate guy. Mm-hmm. I was going to be a lawyer. There was no question in my mind. My sophomore year, I went to nationals for speech and debate, went to Chicago. Uh, I won at the state level. And at the state level, we have this thing called Congress where you act like, you know, student Congress. I was recognized as super Congress, which is the highest level you could go. Man, I was going to be a lawyer. There was no doubt in my mind, Paul. And um, while I was under Dan Obey, who is still a friend of mine today, we speak pretty regularly. He had did a play or two here and there, which was fun. And when I was a sophomore, my mom finally left a very abusive man she was married to, super abusive. And during that time of her leaving and us, you know, living at this friend's house and that friend's house and all these things, I did what a lot of kids did. I started experimenting with alcohol and drugs and sex and anything I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. And my mom had came home one day, found me, you know, passed out in the living room with the radio playing right by my head and I couldn't even hear it. And she didn't know what to do with me. So she kicked me out of the house. Mm-hmm. I had to go live with my father going into my junior year. And by the way, I was always maintaining great grades. So that was never an issue. I was just enjoying, you know, the life of basically having no adult supervision. That really hurt my relationship with my mother, which we later mended. But I went to go live with my father, and I go to this great school. Seminary was a small school, 2A, and I'm going to this uh, Blue Ribbon School, Oak Grove. They're a 5A school, amazing. And when I walk into the hall, Paul, a teacher meets me named Hogan Bramlett and said, Mr. Obey told me you're a talented kid. And I'd like you to join our drama department. I said, that's not really my interest. I'm more of a speech and debate guy. And she closed me. She said, if you join the drama department, I'll sponsor the speech and debate team. Wow. I said, okay. Now, in my junior and my senior year, the speech department and the the debate team were the same identical people. And if you look in the yearbook, they just literally didn't bother to take a second picture. And what I can tell you is our theater department has gone on to just to be amazing. By my senior year there, we, we went to state. We won state. We went to nationals, which got me scholarships all over the U.S. And the speech and debate team was terrible those two years. But one of my friends who was in my grade with me, Shane, came back as a teacher. And they are. So we got two powerhouses. They've won like 15 state titles between the two of them in like the last 20 years. They're amazing. So, but yeah, so, so I went to college always wanting to be a lawyer prior to getting introduced to this theatrical experience. And I fell in love with the theater. 
So I go to school, I'm doing performing arts. I'm taking every academic level class I can get. Uh, I'm in the advanced honors program. I'm taking advanced physics, math, everything, because I just love to learn. But then something happens my senior year. I realize I'm getting close to getting out. And, uh, well, let me even junior year, pardon me. I'm getting close to getting out and I start working at a pet store. And Paul, what, what sparked my interest in business was, uh, another friend of mine who was an adult by this point, she was experiencing the stage in life as a young, a young mother with a small child that I experienced when I lived with my mother as a teenager. She was addicted to drugs. Her husband was addicted to drugs and I took her to rehab and we go back in there. My wife is not my wife. I'm, I'm, I'm dating Shannon, who is now my wife, who's our CFO. We're in this pet store and her little grandmother, Sally comes in and she goes, okay, we got to keep it running for Rebecca and Tristan. Tristan's her son. They wouldn't mind that. I tell this story. We're still great friends. We got to keep it running for Rebecca while she's getting better. And so for six months, every day we did daily management reports, which were essentially, let's check our inventory. How much cash do we have? How much is in the bank? What can we buy today? What is selling? Let's figure out what's selling so we can stock the shelves with that. And we kept that business going and then began to start to make that business thrive. So that happened my junior year and I got a bug for business. So by the time I became a senior in my uh, in my last couple of months, man, I I was focused on the pet store, and then I became focused on my career, and it has been a marriage of those three things for me, Paul. It has been a marriage of organizing conversations. That's my speech and debate experience. It has been a marriage of telling stories and connecting with people. That's my theater experience, and it has been a marriage of stepping into businesses that are in crisis mode and doing everything that we can to save something for someone else to come back to. And Rebecca's business did great. It grew. She sold it eventually. And then she's, she's into her second business now and and proud to say that she has had an amazing life ever since and has never had any relapse issues. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I want your perspective on this idea of trade school versus college. And I'll give you some context to this question. Mm -hmm. I often see memes or whatever posts on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook that, you know, make the suggestion that trade schools are a better path than college and that, you know, not going to college is not a, you know, shouldn't be a negative mark against someone or or whatever. But I, I, I guess my question is more for just your, your impression of that argument as someone who went not only to college, but, you know, through fine arts, what's, what, what's your perspective on that concept of trade school or college? Like, I don't really, that's a great question. And I think it's slightly different than that. I think, I think everyone needs an amazing education. And I think amazing educations come in a variety of manners. I think about Matthew Stewart. Uh, Matthew today's probably, probably 32, 33. He's got three great kids. And when Matthew was a teenager and I was friends with his dad, let's call him Matt Stewart because his dad is also Matthew. So Mm -hmm. Matthew, the father, Matt, the son. 
when Matt was a teenager, his dad came to me and said, Todd, Matthew wants to start working in the business, business in Hickory, North Carolina, 72 degrees, which they sold. Mm-hmm. He goes, he wants to start working in the business. Um, I'm, I'm kind of thinking maybe he should go to school. Will you talk to him? And I said, I said, Matthew, Matt's a really smart young man. Uh, he knows what he wants to do right now. And honestly, I think that what you should let him do is I think you should let him learn how to be a GM. So he's going to learn more working for you over the next four years. By the time he graduates from, you know, HVAC school 101, he's going to know more from that. And that's the future that he wants to live than he is by going to school for four years. So Matthew didn't even go to trade school, nor did he go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, but Matthew could step into any small to medium sized air conditioning business right now and run it from top to bottom. He is educated well in his chosen perspective. And I think that if we go back to, you know, when education started to become formal, we are going to find, especially when it comes to certain fields, it's about apprenticeships. Yes, we have a very formalized education system right now when it comes to doctors, but that evolved. And what it evolved from was curious people, you know, running the risk of doing dangerous things and getting in trouble to getting a few smart people that can bless them to do that, to say, okay, we'll give you the blessing to do these experiments. And then a few other smart people come behind and go, I want to learn what you're doing. So I'm a, I'm a a massive proponent in guided education. I, I think that everyone needs to be educated period for a fact, whether that happens in trade school, whether that happens in college, whether it happens through apprenticeship programs, I think the real the real thing here is 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 education. Yeah. Now I'll tell you this, and I do I do feel this very strongly. I feel like there's a lot of college systems that are about making money and they're not about educating, and I think they're trash. But I'll be square with you too, Paul. I think there's a lot of trade schools that fall right into that same line where they artificially say, uh, you know, a tradesman has to have two years to pick up a skill and go get in a truck. And that's not true. Hmm. You, you can give a, a tradesperson, uh, depending upon the trade and the complexity, a couple weeks of focused, intense, formal education, and then put them in an apprenticeship program. And they're going to be way more skilled at the end of two years than they will be someone that just goes to a two-year trade school. I was actually on the uh, uh, I was actually on the board of education for a local trade school here in Austin, and uh, I, I couldn't support their real mission, so I got off because th- it was about money. It wasn't about the kids actually being better when they graduated. That's not surprising, but yeah. good perspective. Now, thank you for answering that, and I think that you this bet. goes to what we talked about before the show, that it is, you know, creating awareness around the concept of, and not, or it's not this or that. And as it relates to education, my thought or my feeling is, you know, a commitment to lifelong education. And whether that means there's a four-year school involved or a 10-year apprenticeship or a becoming a GM or whatever that is, but being able to tell that story of, you know, how did I commit myself to learning, which we'll get into as we, we talk more about your training. But sorry, I kind of took us off the rails there, oh, which um, our listeners are used to <laughs> Unchange your filter. But talk to me about the transition into training, and then we'll get into the state of training and then talk about sure. service excellence. 
So when you say transition to training, give me a give me a little bit more detail on the the nature of the question so that I answer it well. Yeah, yeah. So how did you get to where you are now, where you've got a team of gosh, it looks like twenty or so people. You're training contractors. You've got um, you know corporate relationships all over the country. And quite honestly, I feel like you fly under the radar, <laughs> even though you've built quite a brand for yourself. You know, how did you? Well, we'll start here. Okay, you. Mentioned one of the first steps towards starting Service Excellence was getting fired from your partnership. Tell tell us about yeah. that. Okay. Before, uh, after, during, whatever. I, getting fired from my partnership is that's almost you know more storytelling than than what is. Uh, <laughs> but I'll give you the full picture. That that's the yeah. that's the fastest way to say it. It's somewhat accurate. It's not hundred percent accurate. So I was a fifteen percent partner in a company called drain and air rescue here in Austin. And I launched that prior to that, I was working uh, with clockwork home services back when they were all consolidated back when it was SGI, which is now certain path. So all those memberships success Academy, as well as the franchises. So I worked there for three years and I met a guy named Will Hawkins, uh, another guy that's been really successful in his life. I met a guy named Will and I got to a point to where I wanted to be in Texas. Uh, That was the real motivating factor. We wanted to come here, my wife and I, we wanted to raise a family. We wanted to be close to, you know, our family. So Will had offered me an opportunity to start a company with him. He had just sold Will Fix It. And I said, that sounds great. So I was the 15% partner, but I was doing the day-to-day operations from top to bottom. And um, I think in our first year, we did like a million dollars. I had sold the vast majority of that. By year two, we did 3.2. Going into year three, we had brought on a plumbing company and everything was growing. I wasn't managing the plumbing part of that. He had brought in one of his old employees to manage the plumbing part. Well, the short version of it is, is Will was an absentee owner from the business uh, so was Stacy, the other partner. I was running things day to day and I came out of a super aggressive culture and I, my personality is super aggressive. It's hard charging. It just is that. And I didn't really know it, but, uh, but I suppose the, the plumbing manager really didn't like me. And that was a surprise to me because I thought we were friends. Uh, the short version of it is, is that that soured some of the relationship and, and I, in speaking to Will and Stacy, uh, essentially found out that what their perception of what was going on in the company wasn't my perception. And at the time, I don't think that they could believe that because they weren't there every day. And it's very easy when a multitude of people see things differently than you do to believe the multitude. Will and Stacy are great today. We, we've had conversations. Uh, the reality of those situations have become clear after the fact we're fine with each other. You know, me separating from my business partnership was the greatest thing that could have happened. So I say I got fired, but that really wasn't what took place. What took place was we went to a meeting at lunch and I said, you know, Will, this clearly isn't working for you. You're not happy. We're not on, we're not seeing things eye to eye. So I'm going to step away from it. And I guess that conversation caught him by surprise because he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, and I'm like, come on, that's not catching you by surprise. 
I, I know you've been kind of wanting me to step away from it. You, you've given me every signal other than saying it. So when we say I got fired from my business, really, I kind of, I kind of stepped away from it. And, and I was more concerned about, you know, maintaining that relationship than, uh, than, than not. So my three-year non-compete was up with, uh, with clockwork and it's like, this is, this is good timing. So I'm going to start this business and I'm going to start it as a solopreneur. I had did the blue collar thing. I had did the white collar thing. I did leading teams. And at 31, I guess, Paul, I said, I don't want to, I don't want to do that anymore. I was listening to a lot of Seth Godin, if you guys know who he is. And Seth's always bragging, or at least in the past, he's always bragging about being a solopreneur. I was listening to a lot of Seth Godin. I said, that sounds good. I, I, it's just going to be me. So that's it, man. I I decided, well, I, I, I decided after an opportunity came up. I was thinking this is going to be a great idea. I think I want to do this. And so I kind of had some time in between, Paul and if I were to give you the whole scoop, my wife and I actually went on a short trip to Disney World and we met with the old team while we were down in Florida and they had offered me opportunities to come back and and I passed on it. I, I didn't want to come back. This is the old team at Clockwork? Uh, Clockwork. Yeah, okay. they, they had offered me opportunity to come back. They were gracious in that manner and and I really thought about it, but man, I got to tell you, it's... I don't know how to describe this, but when, you, when I walked back into that corporate building in Sarasota and I had the old suit and tie on that I hadn't worn for three years. I found myself going, I want to be back in the spotlight of working with contractors, helping them grow their business, but I don't want to check into a cubicle every day. Yeah. It felt like the thing I want to do, but not the way I wanted to do it. And so it just didn't sit right with my heart. So I told him I'd think about it and uh, I needed some time to consider it. Uh, but I think I'm going to go. I said, I said, I'll think about it, but I think I want to do my own thing. To which they said, if that's what you do, we'll see you in the marketplace. That was the exact, I'll see you in the marketplace. Right. I was like, all yeah. right. So on the way back from Florida, I was in Mississippi and and, and Paul, uh, uh, I was praying. I'm like, God, help me know what I should do. And I pull up to the Piggly Wiggly, which it changes names. Sometimes it's a Piggly Wiggly. Sometimes it's grocery stores or ranch. Underrated name, by the way, if yeah. you're listening to this. You need Piggly to Wiggly. So I pull merch. up to the Piggly Wiggly, Paul, and a phone my phone rings and I look at the name on it and it says Jimmy Hiller. I was like, Jimmy Hiller? I hadn't talked to Jimmy in years. So I answer the phone and Jimmy goes, Dot, I'm looking for someone to help me do some training. Uh, are you available? I was like, well, as a matter of fact, I am. <laughs> so my very... My very first job at Service Excellence, it wasn't even Service Excellence. It was, it was, it was Todd, right? Yeah. But I said, hey, I've got to name it something, was Jimmy right. Hiller. He was the very first client we had. Now, wasn't Jimmy involved with Clockwork? That's question one. And then question two is, can you give listeners some historical context of who Clockwork was in the industry and kind of who they were in their prime? Yeah, absolutely. And and there's, they still exist. They just exist... In, a, in different, you know, entities now, but, uh, but clockwork was formed by Jim Abrams and John Young. And this was after their service experts first consolidation. And I think it might've been after CSG or maybe CSG and clockwork just rolled into each other. I'm not, I don't remember how that goes exactly, 
But Clockwork established Airtime 500, Plumber Success Group International, uh, Electrician Success Group, and Success Academy. And that's, and I came in as a trainer of Success Academy. And within the first year, I got promoted to the director of that organization. I think I was the youngest executive on the team. If that position was considered executive, I think that it was. You'd let, I'll let them tell you if it was or not. But I was the youngest leader on the team, no matter what. And uh, I was responsible for our training organization. And I also am happy to say that I tripled the size of that business before I left. So, so yeah, they, they also had the one hour, the Benjamin Franklin, the Mr. Sparky. So they had the franchising world and eventually they sold all that right about the same time that I started this, which is interesting enough. So I interviewed with them. Jimmy gave me my first job and no, it was probably about a year later, about a year later. I think that they ended up selling uh, to direct energy, mm-hmm. direct energy took on the group as a whole. And then after a period of time, Direct Energy sold all of the SGI versions back. I think Lon and Rebecca and a few other investors raised the money and, and they bought that back and they operate that today now under certain path. And Direct Energy kept the franchising division, but they also kept Success Academy where I had worked. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they sold to Authority Brands. So Authority Brands now owns the uh, Franchisings and Success Academy. And going back to this concept of relationships, you heard me talk about the relationship with Will, and I could call Will right now. I wouldn't say we're dear friends. I would say we got a lot of mutual respect. I I thank Will for the opportunity to get down here. Oddly enough, even for the opportunity to leave in the way that we did, where you know I just sold my piece back to him. I took a computer with a little money and a computer. I started this. Yeah. But, you know, I got I got nothing but respect for, for Lon and Rebecca. We're, we're certainly, I, I wouldn't say we're friends. I'd say we got a lot of mutual respect for each other. I appreciate what they do. I believe they appreciate what we do. Uh, I speak to Rebecca occasionally, maybe every 16, 18 months like that. It's always a good conversation. And uh, I actually am still friends on the other side of that table with Lance Sinclair. He's a great guy. He, Lance actually used to work under me. We competed for the position uh, at Success Academy. He stayed and became the president of Success Academy, and now he's even further up the food chain. And Lance and I maintain a great relationship. And, man, Paul, believe it or not, we actually provide some back-end training to Success Academy and to some of their people and some products. So Success Academy is actually a client of ours. And that was super cool. I've had a chance to yeah. to do a, a presentation on their stage with uh, with one of their trainers named Matt. And uh, that that was awesome, man, to go from, from working for them to being sued by them. Oh, yeah, yeah, listener. They sued me when I started my company <laughs> to putting them on my prayer board and, and trying to treat them with respect to mending those relationships to not only mending, but also serving them. That's that's a cool journey, in my opinion. Yeah. And it tells a, a cool story to your children as they piece together what what dad was up to over his career and, and what he went through. Um, oh yeah, I did some jerk, I did some jerk face things, Paul. I'm I'm only telling you the good parts. I poked the bear here and there <laughs> along the way too. But <laughs> yeah, I, I want to talk more about that. But uh, you mentioned Seth Godin. At some point, you had a yeah. the opportunity to have a conversation with Seth. Yeah, so it was it was mostly emails, 
And then there was a short little conversation that happened when I was on the treadmill at the YMCA, but I was trying to figure out how to promote what we do. Mm-hmm. And the question came up to myself, should I charge for every single little thing that I do? And in a series of emails, and then again, a very brief conversation, Seth had told me, give it all away. And this is what he said. He said that you cannot give it all away in your lifetime, even if you try to, because the, Mm -hmm. the amount of time it takes to, you know, write a blog or to shoot a video is substantially more than the amount of time it might take just to hold a conversation with someone, even like what we're doing now, right? You and I might speak for an hour and hours are going to go into getting this ready and then distributing it. And then who all is going to listen to it? A lot of people will, but not everyone. Mm -hmm. So Seth's point was you can't give it all away and that there are no secrets and you shouldn't treat life like there are secrets. So what he told me is that when, when people come to you and when people pay you, they're going to pay you for your relationship and your service. And I took that challenge on and said, okay, I'm going to do that, Seth. And in the early days, uh, that's what I did. I just poured out as, as much as I possibly could, just pouring blogs, videos. And I still feel like we do a pretty good job of that today. But what's interesting is I have more time now but now my time is being poured into my people and they're pouring into other people. But yeah. So you had mentioned that we kind of fly under the radar and I think we kind of do, but I think we kind of don't. Yeah. Um, I'd have to look again, but I want to think in, in, in a year, you know, not in a year, pardon me, in a month, we're getting 20 or 20,000 more plus or minus their unique visitors per month, mm-hmm. you know? So we're, and we've been doing that for years. We're, That's you know, amazing. we'll see, 227,000 to 275,000. It's always around a quarter of a million visitors. But the thing that's different is in the beginning, these quarter of a million visitors might have consumed, you know, 1.1 pages. Now these quarter of a million visitors, when they come on, they're consuming, you know, you know, five point so pages per visit. There's the consumption rate has steadily increased, even if the visitation hasn't gone up. And and frankly, I don't know what the size of this audience is. I, I don't, I don't know how many folks there are in the service world doing this thing. So I feel like we're probably reaching people, but we're just not doing it in the in your face social media approach. Yeah, it's funny. It reminds me of the first time I met you. You were getting on an elevator at Service World Expo and I looked at you and I was like, we know each other. We're friends. My name is Paul. And you looked at me like, who are you? But the thing was, I had been consuming your content for years and it just been like, "I, I recognize this guy without ever without you ever telling me to consume it, it was just an industry resource that was there. And I had been chewing it up for years and I'm oh, one of thanks, those, man. you know, 5.1 pages or whatever. But, um, yeah, you, you mentioned, um, social media, you mm-hmm. know, the, um, especially because of social media. And I feel like because of just the, you know, the way information is shared these days, you no longer have to go to industry conferences and, and walk the booths. You no longer have to go to trade shows and do those sort of things. You can kind of you know, size up the landscape of what's available as a contractor pretty quickly. And one of the fastest ways to do it is just scroll through your Facebook and listen to people tell you how great they are. Right. <laughs> there are, um, I There's mean, I know stories, that. I know examples and, and again, man, I'm, I love entrepreneurship and, and solopreneurship and all that. 
but I know people who are great technicians who went through some training and all of a sudden now they're training, you know, people across the country and changing lives and, you know, pictures in front of private jets and the whole, you know, um, mm. kind of like, well, glorification of the trades, but that's another point. But my question is that's buried in there somewhere. Talk to me about the landscape of training and yep. then tell me where you fit into that. <sighs> okay. So landscape of training. I think that when you look at training, training kind of falls into uh, two dramatic extremes of each other. And let's say on the right axis and on the left axis, not a political statement, but let's say on the extreme right axis, it is so uh, S&P driven that every single word of the communication uh, has to be scripted, documented. It's rigid and it makes technicians feel like robots. What do you mean by SNP? Uh, systems and procedures. Got it. Okay, cool. Yeah. So the, everything is so systemized and written in a procedural standpoint, which by the way, let me, let me be clear. I think everything worth doing should be documented, yeah. but there is a difference in having a standard approach or system and procedure that you want your people to achieve and comparing that to trying to think that these technicians, going back to my theater example, are going to memorize your hour to two and a half hour sales presentation, word for word, like they're reading Shakespeare, because they're not. They're just flat out aren't going to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are very few professional actors that can actually do it with 100% consistency. So now let's go to the other side. The other extreme side is, on. The, let's go to the extreme left axis here. And this extreme left axis is one where, I'm not even going to say it's no training, but let's say it's so casual and it's so relaxed and it's all about the personality and it's all about the motivation and it's nothing else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not even going to talk about the folks that don't even do training at all. I, we're talking about the axis of training. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of goes back to this. Absolutely. You have to be motivated. And if anyone's ever ran a group of service technicians, they know this is super critical because just demotivate a service technician and then try to send them on their way and say, have a great day. Now go make me money. If they're not motivated, they're not, they're not going to do it. So I think it is like who I am in my life. I feel like we slide through scales in our life to where we need examples of both. But most of the time, what we need is always in the middle. Mm -hmm. Yes, we should document our procedural approach to service. And the reason why we have a script is because for someone, maybe it's the owner, at some moment in time, they said, this is how I ran the service call and this is my culture. Therefore, it's documented. And you need that. You need a template. Mm-hmm. Imagine um, Beethoven without the documented music. And all we have now is the music. But imagine if we also had the recording. We may think Beethoven plays it the way everyone plays it today, but maybe he played it dramatically different and we just can't understand because we can't hear it. But you know what, Paul, it's still close enough. Yeah. It's still Beethoven. 
And I think that's what documenting things do. And I think when you document something and you say, here's a sample, here's a way, it's not the only way, here is a way to do it. Then what you do is you train your people on that and you give them the appropriate amount of freedom to make it their own. And so for us, when we talk, if you, when people go, what do you fundamentally do? We used to have this saying, and we still say it, but we don't say it as enough. We say it's principles over scripts. Scripts are important, but it's principles over scripts. And, and frankly, Paul, I believe it's principles over systems and procedures. I think systems and procedures become a byproduct of what someone's core value or someone's principle is. Let me prove it to you. Amazon, one of their core values is fast and easy to do business with. That's their principle. That's their core value. And from that core value, they have to get really smart about documenting their systems and procedures in terms of how are we going to build distribution centers? How are we going to build uh, you know, systems of software? But all that is a byproduct of principle. So like if one of your principles is delivering wow service, like you really want to deliver a service that makes people go, wow, this is amazing. Well, you're going to start there first and you're going to discover what that is. And principles are going to start coming out of that. Like always being on time, like being friendly with your homeowner, providing them what we refer to as an added value gift that they didn't anticipate. And then you start documenting it down into the systems and procedures, and then you train your people on it. But when they're getting trained, they need to be trained on core values, systems and procedures, scripting. But the most important thing, in my opinion, is the core values. Because if, as long as they keep that in their mind, and they know what it means when you say do the right thing. They know what it means when you say do quality work. They know what it means when you say, you know, we always present from a price book then what you're going to find is that your service call is going to represent what you want, especially when they've got that script as an example. There's, they're going to paint the picture, and maybe they don't have the same skill as Picasso, but it's still going to be like, oh, yeah, that's a Picasso. Mm-hmm. You're still going to be able to tell it's their own personal uh, approach to it. Now, on the other side of that, If we go to motivation, it's the same sort of thing when you go, what are they being motivated by? And then that goes back to the the principles. And, And I think the real thing, if I'm being transparent, that you are hinting to, that probably is turning you off a little bit, if that's the right thing. Maybe that's not what it is. Maybe it's something different. But I think the real thing that we see from some of the younger uh, folks that are in the training world, and by the way, I think they'll mature and grow up. And I would be willing to bet that some of those younger folks that you might be thinking about that I have probably reached out to them and offline said, hey, you're doing a lot of things well. I look forward to seeing what you're going to do because I've probably done that for all of them. Because I remember being the young guy and nobody was patting me on the back saying, go get them. They were suing me. Yeah, right. Yeah. But if we go back, I think probably what you're seeing in some of those younger folks is that they have had the models of the Logan Pauls, the Jake Pauls. They've had the models of the the internet stars, the, the Nelk brothers that 
are super dramatic, super extreme, in your face, flashing money. And let's be frank, it builds an audience. But I think what maybe be turning you off maybe about it is that sometimes it, it seems like the motivation isn't about the person they're serving. It's more about, look at me, look at me, look at me. Oh man, I'm so humble. And look at my money. Oh man, I'm so humble. Let me drop F-bombs and say, let's go. And it, it, it just reads disingenuous. But what I think about those younger people is that I think they've, they're building their audience. I think they're probably doing good. And I think that as they get a little bit more mature, they will probably reflect back and go, huh, you know what? Those were my young years and I don't regret them, but I'm going to do it different now. That's what I suspect will happen. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it shows you though, just how much of a demand for training and coaching exists in the industry and that contractors who are, shouldn't say smart, but I'm not coming up with a word, but contractors who are thinking about building a successful business are constantly searching for more coaching. I talked to Will Blanton a couple of weeks ago. He has six coaches he works with. Maybe there it was seven, but talk to me about like, there's no, I guess to, to put a bow on that, I guess the, what I was wanting to say was there's not a shortage of trainers and content and material, but there's a, a shortage in like real accountability and implementation. Yeah. And that's where you come into play. So talk to me about how you work with your clients as it relates to, you know, the application, accountability and implementation. So absolutely. Uh, and, and, and keep in mind, our, our training has evolved and it will continue to evolve because in the beginning we were just, you know, sales training. We just want to boost the, the basic core, you know, things that techs have to produce at average ticket, closing percentages, service agreements and leads. And then it became, well, let's, let's do that for salespeople. Let's get their closing percentages, add-ons, average tickets up. And then it became that for CSRs. And then after a while, what we began to realize is that we were building out something that works at scale because the frontline training works at scale. It doesn't matter if you're hundred million or a million. If you do those things for individuals, it's going to work. But what we weren't building out were the leaders. And so a, a few years into this process, we started, you know, switching it. And I think, frankly, it probably got started with Alan O'Neill at Abacus, uh, who I just, I value so much. Alan's just an amazing guy. He was one of our early supporters as well. I started writing these managerial lessons for him. And that was kind of the first thing I wrote, the, the manager lessons. Uh, and now what it's evolved into, Paul, is that when we take someone on at this stage of the game, we first and foremost, because look, man, look, I, I have learned how to sell like some of these other guys have learned how to sell. And I know that the easiest way to sell a, a business owner, if they call me, is not to talk about the business owner. It's mm-hmm. to talk about their problems at, that their people have, because every business owner is going to tell you how bad their people suck. But what I know is that that may be the easy way to sell them. Oh, I'm going to fix your people. But the real way to change the company is we got to fix the business owner. Mm-hmm. And would you believe that's actually a harder sell? Because we say, hey, you know, the first thing that we're actually going to do is we're going to sit down with you and we're going to do a strategic design with your company where you're going to get crystal clear about what you want over the next three years. 
And we are going to be so clear about that. We're going to set revenue, margin, and profitability goals for the next three years. And the next 12 months, we're going to dial that in to revenue, profitability, and margin goals. And we're going to dial that in for the next 12 months right down to the actual number of installs you're going to be doing, the actual number of service calls. So we build out their plan with them, and that's what we do now. And when the plan is built out, not only is, is, is that part of it, but going back to core values, we help them solidify their core values. We get that dialed in. We get them to dial in what their future is for their team, what their future is in terms of how they're going to do sales and marketing. We get all of that dialed in, and now we go after it. And we chase that three-year vision with them like crazy. And while we are holding the owners and the managers accountable to that three-year vision, what we're doing, the tactile thing that we're doing that I think for a long time people thought about us as, is we're training your front line. Mm -hmm. And our approach to training and to manager and accountability is not one that is scalable for us. It's scalable for you. Got it. What I mean by that is that most training organizations are usually more about the bottom line. And the best way to scale is to do group meetings with as many people as you can get into it, because what you are limited on is your time to be in front of people. Yeah. So instead of doing it with one company, we're going to put 50 companies in here. I know I ran that type of organization. When I started this company, there was one fundamental thing that I wanted to do that was very important to me. And that's make radical transformation in the life of people that we serve. And the way that you make real radical transformation in the life of people is through accountability that comes from one-on-one -on -one coaching. So when we have a coach, that coach has a limited number of clients. Let's, let's talk about our business coaches. Our business coaches are limited to 12 companies and maybe less, but that's 12 companies to where we are holding the management and the leadership team accountable and we are delivering frontline service training to the technician team. And I said maybe less because if we are going to, some of our companies are quite large. We have 20 plus million dollar companies where they have multiple departments, but we have a coach with a company at a time. And that's where the impact comes from. We charge a little bit more of a premium for that, but the impact is dramatic. It's just it's just way different when your technician develops a personal relationship with our coach and it's just their company and they can be real and work and there there aren't other people there that uh that are listening in and keeping them reserved. Now, I still also believe in the power of a group approach and we have, you know, owners groups that want to partner together and do those type of things. But in terms of the core of our model, we are a one-on-one -on -one coaching and consulting business. And that is the dramatic thing that makes us different, Paul, because that is not what most other companies are doing. And in, in fact, let me be clear about it. No one else was doing that. We did it first. There are a few that are starting to follow our model. And I think I could be wrong but I'm pretty sure we were also the very first to teleconferencing video training. Uh, we did it before Skype was even a thing with a product called, uh, I think it was with Jimmy. We did it over Jimmy's like uh, Life View or some, something like that it was based out of Austin, which was eventually purchased, I think, by Skype. Mm -hmm. So in terms of like 
this kind of concept of doing online training in a live event, it's not just video logged in. I, I could be wrong, but I think that we were the very first at this. And uh, you might be surprised to know that we're delivering like 12,000 hours plus of frontline training every year and similar hours to management and leadership training. So, yeah, I, I don't I don't think anyone is as prolific in what we do in our space. Let's go back to Seth Godin, who mentioned giving everything away. Um, I yeah. believe you were doing a podcast before we all did podcasts, and you've got yeah. you've I got windshield with it, <clears throat> right? We I just often wonder, like maybe you just started too early. You should relaunch everything you did five years ago. Um, <laughs> talk to me about some of the free tools and resources that are out there for contractors that they can consume today yeah. um, that adds value to their company, and then we'll we'll talk more about. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to talk about my website and I hope that's what you're talking about. If it's not, that yeah. you know, leave, leave me another direction. Uh, but on our website, we have close to a thousand articles that are written in blog form. And I, I, I did do that. Well, I got into the blog form concept early. I had some great models. So most of these articles are three to 500, you know, words, some are a thousand. They're all easy to read. They're fast to scan. We have, you know, handout after handout that's on the website that's absolutely free. Almost everything that is on our website is free. There's just a few things that that's on the website that's not free. Like I think we have our press play scripts. I think they're 17 bucks. Our CSR scripts are 17 bucks. And our objection scripts are like 17 bucks. They're, they're very inexpensive. Basically, we just do that as a, as a leader. Mm-hmm. We have a uh, what we refer to as an excellence assessment. It's a survey that you can complete. It takes two minutes. It's a it's eleven questions, and it'll spit you out a grade, hundred percent to zero percent, as to where your business is at and what it needs to do. That's free. We have several different podcasts that are going. Uh, and yes, the the Service Contractor Radio Show was the first podcast, and I think that I might have launched that in like two thousand thirteen or so. And I should have. You're right, Paul. I should have stuck with it. I should have stuck with it, Too but soon. I didn't, yep. I didn't do it as an interview format. And it was so much work, man. I, for an hour, I would spend five, six hours and yeah, but they're still out there somewhere. But now we have windshield time, which is great name, by the way. Thank you. That's, that's an incredible name. Well, that's called Chris Elmore. I got to give him all the credit. He thought, you know, that he's the one doing it. Yeah. Chris Elmore and Chris Loudermilk. Uh, they've been doing windshield time consistently now for probably a year and a half or two years. There's a lot of great podcasts there. Check them out. And and they actually started, they took over the service contractor radio show. So, but then Chris is like, I, you know, what we're doing is a little different. So we want to rebrand it to windshield time. I'm like, go for it, brother. And, uh, and I am relaunched the, the Firestarter podcast. I think I've got eight in the hopper. I'm doing two more interviews this week. I, I committed, I said, I'm going to get 10 in the hopper. Before I re-release, that way I give myself some bandwidth. So, uh, yeah. So, so we're going to re-release that very soon. Uh, I think the first one I'm going to give is going to be for my buddy Kevin Doran over at Next Gen. We've been friends for a long time, and they're just they're killing it, man. And uh, that was a great podcast. But yeah, so Windshield Time, the Firestarter podcast is what I'm doing. Uh, Those are all free resources. Jump into them. What is the Firestarter and what's the meaning behind the name? Concept behind the Firestarter podcast is really simple. I want to talk to people that are just 
you know, uh, on fire. And, and our, our whole brand that we rebranded with is Ignite the Power Within. And whether you are like in, in Blaze moment, like you're just, you're so hot, it's ridiculous. You're, you're, you're like a rocket ship taking off into space. Or whether you have had a life event and that spark has been relit. That podcast is for talking to those type of people that are having those moments in their life. And it doesn't have to be all trades centered. Most of them are, but you know, I'm having a friend of mine that's coming on that's in a, a coaching group that I'm with. His name is Martin. I'm going to be interviewing him next week. And this guy's been busting his butt. And uh, he, he created a product, a, a healthy dessert treat product that he really believes in. He's in Australia. And now he's getting it uh, rolled out nationally in Kroger's and several other grocery stores. And he's just, I mean, he's worked his butt off to make that happen. So he's actually going to come on and, and I'm just going to talk about the challenges that it took for him to make that happen. So yeah, so the Firestarter podcast is exactly that. And, and uh, if someone's listening to this, Paul, and they're having one of those, like I'm having one of those amazing moments where things are clicking, the hard work that I've been putting into has gone from a little bit of smoke to now it's called flame. We'd like to talk to them. Awesome. Well, let's talk about life events. Um, you recently had a, a calcium score done and you were talking about, um, or you were sharing on Facebook, you know, how easy it was and what led yeah. you to get that test done? What is that test? Uh, let, let's talk about that. So a heart calcium score is the easiest thing that a man or woman can do to check their cardiovascular health. Eh, not Maybe it's not the easiest, but it's right up there. It's, yeah. it, it's as painful as getting your blood pressure checked. It takes about as long. So uh, you ask your doctor to give you a heart calcium score, to a referral. You'll go into an imaging center, uh, the same imaging centers that might scan you for an MRI for a broken foot and whatnot. And they have a, a machine. It's an MRI, but it's an, it's an open MRI, which means it's just a donut and you're not encased. So for those of you that are claustrophobic, don't be. And over the course of about 60 seconds, it's going to take several MRI scans of your chest. There's no injections that are needed. There's no prep that's needed. None of that. And when they're done, they're going to be able to see if you are getting plaque buildup, which shows up as calcium in your arteries, and you're going to get a score. And, uh, and based off that score, then your doctor may recommend uh, treatment and or other tests. Like you might actually need to go get a test that has contrast where they will inject a dye into you. And the reason why I had that heart calcium scan is the same reason why I started exercising is because heart disease runs in my family. And my grandfather died of a heart attack when I was 14, and it sent me into this mode of exercise, made me, made me very aware of it. And my, my uncle died from heart disease, uh, and my father has heart disease. He's had a second open heart surgery. So, so that's a heart calcium score. And just like a colonoscopy, uh, I recommend that anything preventative that you can do, you should do. Don't mess around when it comes to your health. And by the way, Paul, I, I very much see, so, so like we have this tool that we call the, the disc profile and it, our clients are using this tool as a pre-hire tool and it passes all the standard, you know, that you got to use to make that, you know, official and legal. But this pre-hire tool is almost like a colonoscopy. If you can catch cancer early and better yet, keep it out, you should. 
So for us, heart scans, colonoscopies, getting the you know the 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 disc profiles and checking them against your job performance and checking what's going on in their heart is is a big thing. An ounce of prevention, as Benjamin Franklin says, is worth a pound of cure. So it's all about prevention. Yeah, I share in my interest in health and and heart health. My dad passed away of heart disease, and I was motivated a year or so ago from Dan Ancinelli. Maybe yeah, it was about a year ago. He had shared, you know, what he had been through, and, and we're lucky Dan's alive today. To be honest, yeah, with, no question, you know what he was dealing with, and he had encouraged folks to get it, um, you know, heart scan or not a heart scan, but the, the calcium score done. And I asked my physician, and it was a very easy order, and it was ninety nine dollars, and it took yeah, twenty cheap. minutes. And, um, you know, looking at that score and I thank God I had a zero out of, it's a zero out of a hundred. I was surprised actually. Um, and it just motivated me more to keep it, keep it low and just to be aware, but it's the, the same thing, like back to the business side, you've got to measure, you have to know where you are and you got to put a game plan together to get better and, you know, and not to be happy with, with just being there. I answered your question, but I didn't give you the, the, the ultimate real reason why. Because I had taken that same heart calcium score about 16 months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the real reason why and that I did it this time around was that uh, I've now been on testosterone replacement therapy, hormone treatment, mm-hmm. for about 14 months. And I wanted to make sure that what I was doing from that side wasn't affecting my cardiovascular health negatively. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by the way, I, I can't tell anyone listening to this enough, especially if they're men of a certain age, how important it is to see a doctor that understands what's going on there, because I have learned so much about this, Paul, from men's depression to, uh, outlook on life. And there's just so much, and it's got, a negative connotation behind it because most people think of TRT treatment as steroid abuse yeah, and it's not, I mean, it can be, but at its core, it's not, it's just taking care of your health. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I'm following the doctor protocol there and that has been so wonderful. It is, it has given me back, you know, optimism and clarity of focus and things that were missing for a while because I was walking around with like 80 year old grandpa testosterone levels. It was pretty bad, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So anyway, yeah, so that, that, that's why I got it. I wanted to make sure I was still taking care of all aspects of my health, not just one. And you're, you're, I know we're getting down to the wire here, but man, your garage is like the ultimate pain cave. You're like a power lifter. So how'd you get into that? And then we'll, then we'll wrap up here. I've been doing that for a long time as well. Go, it goes all the way back to 14. I started cycling. I started running. I started lifting weights at 14 because, again, of, of my grandfather. And, you know, I have the, I have, uh, the, the body type uh, when I was younger that I lost the weight and I got pretty muscular. I was super thin all through college. Um, and, and then when I became a tech, I started eating the same exact meals that all of those technicians out there are eating. Uh, right. So I gained weight. I was still exercising, but the reason why I converted my home gym the way I did, uh, was COVID to be frank. You know, I could see the writing on the wall and knew that the gyms were going to close and I've not missed an exercise routine for a period greater than a week 
since I was 14. And that was always after surgeries. I would take a week off and and then I would go back to light exercise. And I could just see myself um, not being able to go to the gym and just being massively depressed. So I said, hey, you know, Shannon, she's like, yeah, go for it. So the wife blessed it and it has grown into what it is today. And the reason why it has grown into what it is today is that, you know, for a guy that talks about coaching, I had personal coaching in college. I was on a national powerlifting team at Louisiana Tech. And then I never got coaching again until I got into my 40s uh, about two years ago. I got the gym and I hired a coach. And this coach started introducing me to concepts that I had never heard of called the conjugate system. And I started learning this and started realizing that you need a variety of equipment um, just like people need variety of information and it's not one or the other, you know? So Paul, it's, I don't just need the bench with the straight bar. I need a bench with a straight bar. I need a bench with a straight bar with bands. I need a bench with a straight bar with chains, but then sometimes I don't even bench with a straight bar. I need a bench with a variable bar. Sometimes I need a bench with a camera bar. Uh, sometimes I need to do it at different angles. So, and all of it on design and, and, that that's something that's important. And I really hope that you guys hear this because one of the things and one of the concepts that I think that contractors, smart contractors don't make this mistake. And I don't want to say you're dumb if you've made this mistake. I just want to say you're not thinking about it correctly is that sometimes contractors look at training inside their business. Like some people look at training for their health. They go, well, I'm only going to go to the Y or I'm only going to go to Gold's gym or I'm only going to flat press bench. No, no, no. If if you want to get the best of all experiences, what you're going to do is utilize many resources and often at the same time. I've got my home gym. I've got a coach. I'm also a member of the Y. Because sometimes I just want to go sit in the sauna or go for a swim. Sometimes I just want to go shoot the bull with the boys at the Y. But when I really want to get down to brass tacks and do the one-on-one, that's what I do. So, you know, 70% of our clients, Paul, work with us, but are also part of another best practice group, whether that's Nexstar, our Service Nation Alliance, our SGI, or you fill in the blanks. They're doing both. And yes, even those that came to us initially would ask questions like, well, if I join you guys, should I leave X, Y, Z? And I'm like, no, why would you do that? Are you getting value there? How much does it cost? That's nothing. Keep doing that and join us and utilize both. It's not, it's not a bad thing. Utilize both. So that's my philosophy in the gym. It's my philosophy in life. I do think that you can take advice from the wrong people, but I think most of the guys that are out here that you're probably thinking about are, are probably giving pretty good advice kind of related, but anytime I see your videos of you either squatting or deadlifting, I literally have to ice my back, but, um, that's my problem, not yours. I love it, man. I'm, I'm deadlifting today. It's I'm actually, I'm actually motivated for about three o'clock when I'm going to start hitting these weights. Good for you. Um, final question. Yeah. What is the press play system? Press plays principles. So we, we go back to these these principal concepts, and uh, it's an acronym that that unpacks what we see as our principal approach approach to service. 
It stands for the following. Be prepared. There's many sub points that go under that, but be prepared. Build relationships. PR, relationship builder, right? Be a relationship builder. Evaluate your client, uh, which is a nice way of saying, ask them questions. Find out what's important to them, right? Settle your client's fears. They have concerns, uh, and you should be able to address those. All right, so so far we've said hello to the client. We've asked the client what's going on, and we've told the client what to expect through settling their fears. We refer to it as credibility, agenda, and price presentation, pre-price presentation. Three points of conversation with the client, no big deal. The next S is system diagnostic, which I fundamentally believe that any prescription without a system diagnostic is bad practice. So do an amazing job of a system diagnostic. After you have done that, then present your findings, also referred to as prescriptions. The client will say yes if you do a great job. So in terms of what we're talking about, in terms of conversation with the client, it's it's relationship building. It's asking the client or evaluating the client. It is settling their fears and it's presenting solutions. So all in all, it's literally just four steps of communication. Now, the L is labor, which is the obvious next step. And when we talk about labor, we talk about doing it with craftsmanship mindset and being proud of the work. And the A and the Y go together. It's add value, do something that makes it memorable, provide a service that they didn't expect. It's add value so that your future will be secured. And when it comes to your future, obviously we have recommendations there that are very straightforward, simple, service agreements, stickers, etc. But if you look at press play, it's prepare, relationship, evaluate, settle fear, system diagnostic, prescriptions, labor, add value for your future. This episode, like all episodes, is brought to you by Contractor Commerce, plug and play online stores for contractors. We see a future where every contractor has an online store.